0: Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I'm Rob Spikstra. I am the uh, pastor of discipleship. I'm going to preach this morning. Might throw you, yeah. I might throw you off. I don't have a, I don't have a jacket on. Um, I didn't want to start that president, particularly if I'm going to be preaching a little bit more over the summer. I thought, boy, I don't want to be wearing a, a jacket all summer. So uh, that's why I am the way I look today. Several years ago, I remember sitting out there where you were, and Justin was up here. Pastor Justin was up here, and he was saying, "Hey, we're going to be starting a new book," and he said it begins with the letter R. I was like, all right, Romans, we're going to get Romans, I love Romans. And then he said, Revelation, and I'm like, oh man, we've missed out. So here we go, we get to start Revelation, I mean, sorry, we get to start Romans this morning. <laughs> and and this, is, this is the words that we have on our Facebook page, I assume that Justin is the one who wrote these, but uh, here's the words, if you, didn't, um, if you didn't read them, it goes this way, there's only one way to eat an elephant. Abide at the time. The book of Romans is, and in capital D-E-N-S-E, the book of Romans is dense. It's a full course theological and gospel feast. John Piper began preaching through Romans in 1998 and finished in 2006. (laughs) Eight years and 225 sermons later. Oh, but knows. The man over in England, uh, previous to him, Martin Lloyd-Jones, took 12 years across 336 sermons. And then it continues with us. It says, we will begin our journey through Paul's letter to the Romans this Sunday, that is today, and we will be, the first in, be in the first chapter for the next four Sundays and we'll revisit periodically between other series as the Lord leads, so grab a fork, a knife, and belly up to the table. Let's eat this elephant. <laughs> it's good. So, so why, why, is, uh, why is the book of Romans uh, so dense? You know, why is this uh, theological chef Paul prepare such a feast for this particular church? Um, what impact did this book have on those in our family line, the Romans who, who grabbed a fork and a knife and bellied up to the table? And probably we need to ask the question, why should we we eat this elephant? Well, the the church in Rome, uh, we don't know when that actual church uh, began. We don't know when it was planted. We don't know who planted it. We do know, interestingly enough, that uh, not too many weeks after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and he had ascended, that... Peter, he was there in Jerusalem, and God gave him an opportunity to preach a message. The Holy Spirit had come down upon uh, God's people, the the church, uh, the few, the about 120 or so, who had gathered there for the Feast of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit had come down upon them, and the question is, what is going on? And so God gave him an opportunity to preach a message, his very first message, uh, probably unplanned and prepared, not prepared for at all. And yet the Holy Spirit worked through that with, with a number of people who are in the audience. Uh, interestingly enough, you, you get a names like Parthians and Medes and Elamites and a number of other nations, but we read that there were also visitors from Rome. So we wonder if that is not the first time uh, that they heard the gospel and that these were the individuals who then went back to Rome and they began to tell others about Jesus as the Messiah. Now, as God worked, um, the gospel went out first to the Jews And the the Jews were looking for the Messiah, was looking for the Christ. Uh, They were convinced, these these individuals from Rome were convinced, they went back to Rome that Jesus was the Messiah. And so you can imagine them, like most of those churches, those churches started in a synagogue, and in that synagogue, they were there uh, telling the other Jews that had not been to Rome, or had not been to Jerusalem, they were telling them about this man named Jesus, and this man, Jesus, was the Messiah. But there was a problem. This man, Jesus, was crucified. Uh, they knew the law. They knew the law that said that any man who is hung upon a tree, he is receiving the curse of God. And so it wasn't too quickly that there was a, quite a controversy within the synagogue, particularly there in Rome. There's a, there a controversy that whether or not this man, Jesus, was truly the Messiah. And so eventually we assume that they, these individuals were probably pr- uh, pressed out, kicked out of the synagogue, and so they began, like most of the churches in the New Testament, they were started within a home. And they began to study Scripture and began to see how the Old Testament had pointed towards this one, this Messiah who would be the suffering servant on behalf of humanity. Began to send the gospel out. They began to tell their neighbors about this this man, Jesus, and about how he is the Savior, the Son of God, that he had come to die for them on the cross and rose again from the dead to give life to whomever would receive it as a free gift. And so others were coming in, others that were outside of the Jewish nation, uh, the Gentiles, kind of the umbrella name for everybody else who were not part of God's chosen people. And they began to understand and receive the gospel and so the church is, is, is growing. Now, we don't know exactly when this uh, all occurred in terms of the growth of the church. We think that probably it's understood that that, Paul was, uh, that the church had been around about 10 years before Paul wrote this letter. And so, in a sense, kind of about the same amount of time that this church has existed, Sacred City, that was how long the church there in, in Rome had existed. But some interesting things are happening there in Rome. See, see this controversy that was happening between the Jews and the and the con- and the tension that was going on increasingly grew and, uh, it, there in Jerusalem. I mean, there in Rome, in such a degree that eventually it began to make its way. The turmoil, the the problems, the troubles that the Jews were having with one another, it began to make its way up the kind of the political ladder to the point that Claudius, the emperor, said, "I've had enough," and he he evicted the Jews. And so in A.D. 49, Jews were thrown out of Rome. They were told to leave. They were told to go. Uh, Claudius had had enough of the turmoil. He could care less what the argument was. He could care less about parsing whether the Jew was a, a, a Christian or not a Christian, a Jew that accepted Jesus as their Messiah or not. He didn't care. He sent them all But interestingly, we do know uh, that Paul encountered one of those Jews, or actually a couple, there in Corinth where the the book of Romans was written. It reads in Acts chapter 18 these words, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had uh, commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We also know that as we come to the first chapter there in in, Rome, uh, in Romans, that Paul longed to see them. Oh, down in verse 11, it says, I long to see you, he writes, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well among the rest of the... Gentiles. So he longed to go to Rome, but rather than going west, God was calling him east. Being in Corinth, Corinth Rome would have been west of Corinth, he, God was calling him to Jerusalem, and so he did not have an opportunity to, to go. So in this, he wrote the book or the letter of Romans. Now, Five years after they had been evicted, we can imagine what the church was like because the Jews, for the most, for the most part, are not there in Rome. And so the church is now made of primarily of Gentiles. Gentiles who come from a, a, a different past, a historical and cultural uh, background is different than the Jews and so they're amongst themselves and, and, and if you don't know what your, you know, your history is or your, your culture is or uh, you're not aware of it, you don't even realize how you're being shaped by it and so the, the church is being shaped by these Gentiles, the Jews uh, get to return back because Nero in AD 54, he rises to the throne and he turns back all of Claudius's or most of Claudius's. Uh, rulings. And so he invites the Jews back. And so now we have Jewish Christians who are coming back to the church that's made up a majority of Gentiles. And as a result, there's somewhat of a conflict. And the, uh, the way we know this conflict is as we go into the letter, we begin to see some themes that are, that are written throughout the letter that are dealing with perhaps some issues that the Jews and Gentiles, these believers, are having with one another. So some of the questions are these, what is the scope of the gospel? Does it only speak to the spiritual or religious side of life, or does it speak to all of life? And so his letter addresses this. Or what is the continuity from the covenant promises of the past to the present? And does it really practically matter? And so his letter is to answer some of these questions Tension going on, difficulties are going on uh, there in Rome, and so he brings this letter. Now, I think we need to realize that we are living um, with a similar tension among the churches here in Quad Cities, um, and I'm not speaking of the event. I mean, not speaking of the mainline churches. I'm speaking of the evangelical churches. There are some evangelical churches who really question the value of the Old Testament or of the covenant promises that are found there. And there's a real question uh, among churches, evangelical churches, of the scope of the gospel. Does the scope of the gospel speak beyond the spiritual or religious side of life? And does the gospel really matter beyond dealing with the eternal matters of eternity and just simply living a moral life? so there's conflict there's conflict in Rome and it continues to be a conflict today among the church and so Romans was written for them and Romans was written for us and so it's in this introduction that Paul wants his readers to know what you've heard many times around here and that is that the gospel changes everything the gospel changes everything Paul, in his place of wanting to know, what am I going to do? What should I write about? What letter? What should be the content of my letter? Ultimately, the content of this letter is all about the gospel. Tension in your life, difficulties in your life, troubles within your life, uh, whether that be individually, within our families, within our churches, uh, where do we need to go? We need to go back to the gospel. And interestingly enough, what God is desiring and, and wants for us is that he wants for us not just simply to understand the gospel from a, from a cognitive state, but actually he wants us to, to enjoy it, to actually find joy in the gospel. So, it's not a bad analogy that we are used there, uh, there on fa- Facebook in, in that of eating, that of uh, bellying up to the table. It's interesting, as I was thinking about what is my aim this morning, if I, could, if I could have you leave this morning, what would I want you to leave with? And I think the thought that I had in my mind is I want to, these people to leave with a little bit more joy about the gospel itself. And so I was trying to think well, where's that verse that talks about the joy of the Lord is our strength? You know where that's at? Nehemiah, which we're going to be looking at in in the fall. But it's interesting here what happens in Nehemiah. uh, So kind of get us back into the context of Ezra and Nehemiah. It it says that that Ezra had, had given them the law and the law had been so pressed upon them that it grieved their hearts that they had fallen so short of what God had called them to do. And so, Nehemiah, the governor, this is what he says. He says, uh, no, go your way. Uh, don't, don't, don't grieve. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be gr- grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The answer to this weight of, of the demand of the law is he says, oh, It's a meal. You need to eat a meal. (laughs) And what happens when we eat meals? What happens is we take it in. The reason why we say this meal was good is because it it goes past just our understanding of what we have eaten, but it begins to reach down into our very soul. We enjoy the meal. And so that's what we need to do. We need to enjoy this meal of Romans uh, this morning. So, Father, we pray that you would help us. Um, uh, Uh, There's a lot of content here, Father, Um, and so my prayer is, our prayer is together that out of the content you would uh, minister to our hearts, that you would cause us to leave here not only understanding a little bit more about this introduction, but Father, that we would leave here understanding the subject matter of the gospel and that we would love the gospel just a little bit more as we eat. So we pray that you would feed us, we ask from your word, we pray these things in Christ's name. Gospel changes everything. I'm going to give you four Ps this morning that I think we find here in in uh, this introduction. And the first P that we have here is I think Paul shows this first: uh, the promises of the gospel. That is the fulfillment of God's promises. See, there's no more. There's nothing more confident. Uh, confident building than when promises become uh, fulfilled and we see that uh, within God's Word. And so we begin this way, Romans chapter 1, he writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel of Of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Gospel is the fulfillment of all that God has promised in the Old Testament. Now, Paul uses this word here, he he uses the word prophets, uh, and I don't think he's using it within the, 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 uh, the, the specific names of different prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but rather he's using it in its most loosest term, and that is, these are individuals who are speaking or mouthpieces for God, including himself. See, did you notice there, it's called the what? The gospel of God. It is from God. And it is about God. And God was the one who prophesied in response to humanity's first rebellion. It was was a surprisingly gracious prophecy considering that Adam and Eve, they had the gall to think that they knew better than God and so they disobeyed God's simple command. Don't you ever think about that? How simple it was. Don't eat of this tree. Oh, we know better. (laughs) So God... Prophesied. At that very moment when they disobeyed, God prophesied and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This was the announcement of the covenant of grace. God being gracious to a rebellious people. God entering into a relationship, into, uh, into some promises with people who are rebellious with them. And, and so here's the beginning of it. This is covenant of grace. Remember last week, we're going to keep working with this analogy, version 1.0. And God proph- prophesied that a Savior would come to strike a fatal blow on the enemy of humanity, and that is Satan. The gospel is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. And, and so we have some other prophets that come come along. We have some other covenants that come along. And so we remember uh, 2.0. Uh, we have the Mosaic, I mean the uh covenant, and then we've got uh, 3.0. We have the Abrahamic covenant, uh, of which God promises that through Abraham something was going to happen. And then we have the promise of the the promises of, the, of of Moses. We have that 4.0 covenant of grace, in which God then provides us the both the blessings and the curses for all those who are under this prophecy. And then we have the uh, the 5.0, which is uh, the Davidic covenant, in which God is continually, fully, more progressively revealing this covenant of grace, of which he says is going to be fulfilled one day. And so the gospel is a fulfillment of the old prophets prophecies in such a way that Paul shows the gospel surpasses even the expectations that the Jews and the Gentiles have And if we had time, we would would start to eat chapters 9 through 11. But the gospel does change everything because it is fulfillment of all that God has promised in the Old Testament. And the gospel changes everything because central to all of God's promises is his son. And you see that there in verse 3. Look at there, verse 3. Concerning his son. The gospel is centered around His Son, the second person of the Trinity. The reason you and I can have confidence in what the gospel can do in your life and what the gospel can do in the lives of those around you, in your family and in your friends, and what the gospel can do for our cities is that the gospel is centered not around us, but around God, namely the second person of the Trinity. See, listen again to those words, uh, uh, listen, listen to the words in chapter 8. So we're going we're gonna to look at Romans 8 for just a minute here. Uh, Romans chapter 8 and ber- verse 3. Not surprising that in the introduction then we're having to go into the, into the content, into the depth of our, of our letter here. So Romans chapter 8 verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by what? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirits see when we bring a gospel that is centered around us it will inevitably fall gospel centered around us will fail because it is what? Weakened, that's what he says here, here, it's weakened by the flesh. So if I tell you to get your life together, you will eventually fail. Uh, if you trust a message because of the one giving the message, the messenger will eventually fail. But not so for Jesus Christ. Now why is that? Well, Paul tells us in these next few phrases here. He says, concerning his son, now he's got two phrases, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and second phrase, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Let's look at that first phrase, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to, according to the flesh. See, it's interesting, these two phrases, they believe that they were from a hymn, or that they were at least a creed that were repeated. And that's why we, we sing the songs that we sing or we, uh, we repeat the creeds that we repeat. We do that because we want to lodge within our heads some very important truth. And so they believe that Paul took out these things that they were singing or that they were uh, confessing from week to week uh, these two phrases. And the first phrase was that he was declared, uh, no, that he was descended from David according to the flesh. Now, what's so important about that? Well, within the context or within the, the, the conflict that's going on there in, um, there in Rome, the Jews, they knew that from, from 5.0, the Davidic covenant, that the one who was going to fulfill the covenant of grace had to come through David's line. In his covenant of grace, first graciously introduced in human's rebellion, updates. So here's that update was being made. Wasn't getting rid of all the other updates. We're building off of what's, what God was slowly revealing over time. And so we find that update, Second Samuel chapter 7. This is what that update had to say there. It's at the very center of the update. And it's these words. He says, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 12, and 13. Uh, these are words to David. And this is what uh, the covenant of grace or covenant uh, to, to David is. I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. (laughs) Now, that's a problem. That's a problem because everyone who has been descending from David had the same problem that we have. They keep dying They're all dead. How is this kingdom going to be that which is forever? How is it going to reign? How is he going to reign forever? We need a one who has reigned forever, from all eternity, from eternity, past, present, and into the future. We need God. And so he says, This is a good news. This is good news, Jews. This is good news, Gentiles. The one who has descended, the one who, uh, that has been promised, this, this one who is Jesus, his son, he has descended from David according to the flesh. And so um, it is according to being human and yet one who was raised from the dead. The gospel changes everything because central to all of God's promises is this son, the second person of the Trinity. God himself. Chew on that a little bit. (laughs) Secondly, the gospel changes everything because of the power. The power, verse 4. The power of the gospel. Many times when you're studying a book of the Bible, individuals commentators, authors, will try to kind of nail down maybe one verse that may kind of represent the entire book itself. And so it happens to be that many think that verse 16 of chapter one is the verse that we could kind of nail down in terms of this, this feast that we're eating. So Paul writes to the Romans quickly here, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And it's almost as if Paul is putting this forward right at the very beginning of, of, his, uh, of his letter to say, okay, this is what I claim. I claim that the gospel has a power, that it has the power to save. And now he has upon him, it's been weighed upon him. He now has to show in his letter, how is it that you could say that, Paul? And so the rest of his letter is trying to help them understand it. And if anybody who understands the power of God to change a life, it has to be the man named Paul. In his previous life, before the gospel, he was Saul, the persecutor of the church. His his life was committed to the law. His, His life was organized fully about upholding the law as a means to earn God's pleasure. This Saul, he knew the law. So again, he knew that the law clearly stated that the man who hung on a tree, for instance, a cross, was a man cursed by God. So the suggestion that the Messiah had died under the curse of God, as his followers claimed, that suggestion was blasphemous, And scandalous. For Saul, this was an open and shut case. This is not the Messiah. What happened? Well, Acts chapter (laughs) 9. He met the risen Lord. Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. But Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the name, that would be the name of what Christianity was thought of in that day, uh, to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. (laughs) What is that? The drop the mic moment? You know, that kind of thing? (laughs) I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Down to, uh, a little bit further down to verse 9. And so for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, there was a disciple of Damascus, uh, Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, He is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And I'm thinking in Ananias' mind, he's probably saying, and that's probably how he needs to remain. (laughs) Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And if he sees me, I'm in trouble. But Ananias uh, answered, Lord, uh, um, let's see, where did I leave off there? Sorry. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now, if he didn't hear the word grace there. (laughs) That was an act of grace, right? Wasn't that amazing? Here is a persecutor of the church and he's not looking for Jesus, but Jesus is looking for him. (laughs) And he says, I'm changing you. Got a new mission. It's a new mission. And so, look what happens down to verse uh, 20. And immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. (laughs) That's powerful. Now, Paul's got a problem. Saul's got a problem. (laughs) Saul's got a problem because Saul knows the law. And Saul knows that anyone who is hung on a tree, like a cross, is cursed. Now we don't even know, I mean, there's only a couple days have gone on here, so he's got this problem, but all he knows is he has seen the risen Savior, the risen Savior is is coming to his life, and now he has a new mission, but Saul has this problem, he's got a problem. It's going to have to figure this one out. The Holy Spirit's going to have to help him figure it out. But here we have we have this new power uh, that has occurred. It's, it's the power of the gospel to change lives. And if any man who knows what that's like, it is Paul himself. So we go back to our passage now and look how he describes it there. Paul does. He says, It's concerning his son, verse 3, who descended from David according to the flesh, verse 4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. See, this new power is a power that is now within. He's a master with his words because what he is doing is he, he's doing a contrast. He's contrasting verse 4 with verse 3, which is he masterfully contrasts according to the flesh, which we already discovered is weak, and he says that's, a, that's, that's according with according to the spirit of holiness. These are the contrasts. See, as mentioned earlier, the flesh is understood with weakness, inherent in being born, Uh, into this world is a weakness and that is in contrast to the power that comes as a result of being born again, of, of the gospel, this being born of the spirit of holiness. See, the power of the age of the Son of God as the promised Messiah is one of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So Jesus had to take on flesh, enter into that old age in order to inaugurate the new age that is characterized by an indwelling Holy Spirit, which is really a fulfillment of what was being prophesied uh, there in the exile, and and that was being prophesied that there was going to be a new covenant. There's going to be another version that's going to add on to what you already know about the covenant of grace, and that actually I'm going to write the law of God upon your hearts, and I'm going to teach you from your hearts, And so we're not surprised by Paul's incredibly hopeful words in the fight of sin when we go into deeper into the letter in Romans chapter 8 again. So we go back to Romans chapter 8, and these are the, these are the uh, words that Paul is understanding in terms of the spirit. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh, my goodness. And then down to verse 26. Same chapter. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our, there's our word again, weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought to, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, how and when did this all take place? Well, He tells us at the end of verse 4, He says, This happened by His resurrection from the dead. And his resurrection from the dead declared in time what has been true for all eternity. And that is that God's son, the Messiah, is the one who rules in power. You just see that at the very beginning of verse 4. He declared to be the son of God in power, which has present day implications for those who have his spirit within him. So Romans chapter 6, of which we sang, if you didn't pick up on it. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that as, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. And then they look down verses 12 and 14. So he says, this being the case, let not sin therefore reign. In your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. (laughs) We sang a kindly rule. See, see, this is what, this is, well, back, back to chapter one, look at the, how he ends verse four. Uh, yeah, verse four, he says, this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so Paul is recognizing that the power that has now indwelling in him, that that power is one of lordship, and that he wants to be king of the hearts. He wants to have dominion of the heart, and it's a kindly rule. It's one that destroys all that we hate within ourselves, namely sin. Wow. The gospel. It changes things. It does something else. There's another P. The gospel, it gives new purpose. The gospel gives new purpose. Now, I want to tell you how things work around Sacred City during the rest of the week. Uh, so, uh, Joel, he's the one who puts together the liturgy and um, Joel and I, we don't, talk, we don't talk a lot. We talk a little bit. But uh, uh, he, he, if he came to me earlier in the week and said, I'm putting together a liturgy and what's the message going to be about, I'd be like, well, uh, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to be about exactly. You know? so, so he's studying. He's studying this as I am. And so he's writing a lit- liturgy apart from what I'm learning as I'm studying as well. But did you remember what you, just con- you confessed earlier here? See, we confess the very thing here in terms of this P, this purpose See, we confess this. We have not played our part in your story. Rather, we confess, we've lived small lives centered on ourselves. We've chosen comfort over sacrifice, ease over service, and momentary pleasure over eternal significance. Lost in our own inferior stories, we are both author and hero. Where we are both author and hero, our lives have lost their true meaning and purpose. This is how I wrote it in my notes. Without God's grace, we will always, be choo- we always choose a purpose that is smaller, that is stunted, that is underdeveloped, and paltry in comparison to what God offers. Our vision, apart from grace, is guaranteed to be diminished in comparison to God's vision for our lives. <laughs> a purpose. He places us into his great story, of which he is the hero, and we get to be part of the action. See, this is God's purpose for your life. God's purpose for your life is to glorify him by receiving his gift of salvation by faith. That's what God's purpose is for you. God's purpose for your life is to glorify him by receiving his gift of salvation by faith. And this is a God-sized purpose that flows out of grace and grace flows through Jesus Christ. And the question is, well, how does that happen? Well, grace was obtained for us through the obedience of Jesus Christ. See, there in verse five he says, through whom, Jesus Christ, we have received grace. If Adam was the covenant head of uh, of the covenant of works, Genesis 1 and 2, when he disobeyed, he disobeyed on our behalf. But there's a new head in town, and it's Jesus. See, again, he, as he's going in and he's, he's trying to deal with this conflict, he wants them to understand that the tension that you have in Romans chapter 5, the tension that you have can be, can be really satisfied within the, the person of Jesus Christ. And so Romans chapter 5, verse 19, we read these words. By the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners. But then he goes on, but by the one man's obedience, speaking of Jesus, Jesus being the covenant head, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And what's really amazing is you can not sin this grace. See, look at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. What he's referring to there is he's actually referring back to uh, the uh, Covenant of Grace, version 4.0, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, where we then get the, uh, what do what you to do? Obey. What are you, what are you to do? And it tells us how much we are to obey and what we are to obey. It also reveals to us how much we can disobey. But he says when that law came in to increase the trespass, where, where sin increased, guess what? Grace abounded all the more. So you cannot come into this room and out-sin Jesus Christ. You cannot out-sin the gift. And so for what purpose? What purpose does Jesus Christ come? Verse 21 of Romans 5, he continues, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ. He wants that kingly rule in your heart. He wants righteousness to reign in your life. You want to glorify God today? You want to live for a purpose that really is going to go on into eternity? This is what you need to do. You need to trust in Jesus Christ as your righteousness. That's it. He says, I want you to glorify me. I want you to make much of me by receiving my gift. That's the kind of king we serve. Grace was given to us through the person of Jesus Christ. He gives us purpose, and that purpose is receiving the gift. So he says to us back here in in our passage... It says that, uh, um, verse uh, 5, through whom we have received grace, and now he gives us a second purpose, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In other words, now that you have Christ, if you have Christ within you, he says, now I want you to do this. Here is now your newest new purpose, and that is that you're to glorify him by telling others of this gift. See, back in in, uh, verse 5, Paul had recognized his apostleship as a gift of grace. And he even started off in verse 1, identifying himself as a servant and an apostle. He recognized that he had a new master and that that master was sending him. That's really what the root meaning of apostle is, being a sent one. He said he's, he's an apostle primarily to the Gentiles. Well, we too have those identities. We too have the identity of being a servant, a servant of God. We have a new master. We also have the identity of being a missionary, which is an apostle, to be sent out. And so the, the, same, the same purpose that Paul has is the same purpose that we have. And so what is our aim? What was Paul's aim here? Well, the aim was is that they, he would bring about, through the giving of the gospel, obedience of faith for the sake of the name of Jesus. That people would actually obey, obey the gospel. And he calls it an obedience of faith. And why he calls it that is, is that as he describes for us, we can go to Romans 10, but as he describes, we won't go there. If we, if we went there, it would say there that what is, what is the obedience that God is calling you for with regards to the gospel? And that is to believe. So we're calling people to believe, to believe the good news of who Jesus Christ is, that he is their savior. And who are we to be sending it to? Well, we're to be sending it to, look there, it's all-inclusive among All the nations. It's to go everywhere. No one's excluded. No one. We're to go to all the nations, but we're also to go to our own backyards. And and we see how Paul is getting personal there in verse 6. He says, Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, look at verse 7, to all those in Rome. He's getting personal. recognizes that we glorify God by telling others in our own backyard. And the confidence we can have is that as we share the good news of Jesus Christ, all those who are called to Jesus Christ will be, will will respond. It's the same call that he had there in verse 1, where Paul uses of himself back in verse 1. It's that effective call of God where it produces what is demanded and that is faith effective call. Our job is simply to go out and share this good news and those in whom God calls to himself, just like Saul, will respond in faith. He gives us a new purpose. Promise, power, purpose. Number four, briefly, The gospel changes everything because it gives protection. It gives protection. See, you see that at the end of verse 7. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's a blessing of confidence. Paul's blessing is one of confidence of God's ongoing grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And then he says, and peace... Because he knows that they have peace with God, that he's, they've been reconciled uh, with God, and so they will always be at peace with him because of Jesus Christ. And notice the ones who gives this grace and peace. It is God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, who lovingly, like a father, planned the gospel. And, and then it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The second person of the Trinity who executed the plan on our behalf, whose execution of the plan results in his standing as King of Kings and Lord of Lords and causes us to be in the age of the third person of the Trinity, the age of the indwelling Holy Spirit, in which the Lord indwells within us through his Holy Spirit and has dominion, increasing dominion over our hearts. So it is a protection that comes from the first, second, and third person of the Trinity. We are protected by the Trinity itself. That is good news. (laughs) God's people have the gospel. The gospel changes everything. All of God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. You can be absolutely confident that whatever he promises for you, he will fulfill it. The gospel changes everything. It is the power of God for salvation to save us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, eventually the presence of sin. The gospel changes everything. It gives us purpose that exceeds any purpose that we could have in this life. And the gospel changes everything because we live under the protection of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glorify God today. Believe. Trust. In him. Trust in him as your Lord and Savior. If you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, He is the one who's come to save you from the wrath of God. See, remember, Paul? Saul had a problem. It took a number of years, but the Holy Spirit helped him to see that the that the, the curse that came upon the one on the tree was on behalf not of the one, but of the many sinners. And when he recognized that, he understood fully what God has given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took the wrath of God on your behalf for your sins. Believe today. Glorify him. Believer, continue to glorify him. Continue to believe in the gospel and the victory that it gives you over sin within your life because he does want to have dominion in every part of your life. Church, believe in the gospel. Glorify God with the gospel by going into our cities and by showing them the power of the gospel and how the scope is one which goes beyond just simply dealing with our religious life, but of all of life. Glorify him. Let's believe in the gospel. It changes everything. Father, thank you. Thank you for the good news again today, to be reminded again. Thank you, Father, for the songs that we have sung, uh, that have sung about the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the confession and profession, and we look forward to the benediction, reminds us of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for the Lord's Supper, which again we are reminded of what Jesus did for us, gave his body, broke his body was broken for us, his blood was shed on our behalf, took the wrath of God in order that we might have, be under this new covenant. a covenant that was secured by our Savior and one that's guaranteed by the Spirit that lives within us. We thank you, Father, for this great plan. May we, as we eat, enjoy it just a little bit more. Enjoy this feast we have in the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.